official K1 podcast, K1 Battlecast. Oh, You'll get news, fight reviews, and fighter interviews. And now, your hosts, Michael Shamero and Jonathan Shea. It's good night, Yes, it is the K1 Battlecast, the official podcast of the new reborn K1. It is so good to be talking to you wherever you're listening around the world. I'm Michael Chevello. You may know me from, uh, I guess they say, such classics as Peter Ertz, you crazy bastard, you've done it, or uh, Michael Zambides, the mayor of Munchkin Town. And I'm coming to you from Melbourne, Australia. I'm joined all the way from Tokyo by my longtime K1 producer, Jonathan Scher. G'day, Jonathan. Good to be here, Michael. Oh, man, this is going to be so much fun. What a first episode we have for K1 Battlecast. Folks, just looking ahead, we have a review of where it all began, the 1993 K1 World Grand Prix. We're going to jump in the DeLorean and go back in time and revisit K1 Grand Prix 1993. And, Jonathan, we've got a very special interview for our first ever episode. Who is it? We were joined by the founder of Seido Kaikan and the father of K1, Mr. Ishii himself. What a conversation. Man, we couldn't get a bigger interview than Kancho Ishii, the man who created K1. You know what the funny thing is, Jonathan? Uh, I remember the K1 video games back in the old, old, old days. And yeah. you'd fight against the likes of Peter Ertz and Ernesto Hoost and Andy Hoog, Branko Sikitik, Masaki Sateki. You'd go through levels. And just when you thought you'd gotten to the end and you've beaten the game, out comes... The final character, who in these video games is usually always the big villain, right? He's always usually the big bad guy. Well, that guy yeah. in the early K1 video games was Master Ishii. So after you got beaten, you know, you, you'd beaten the hook, you'd beaten Ertz, you'd beaten Hoost, you'd beaten Greco and Sataki and Sikatik. You had to fight Master Ishii, who was the last guy. The final boss. The final boss, the big boss, the the Capo del Tutti Capi, the boss of bosses in K1, Master Ishii. So we'll be talking to Master Ishii later on, an exclusive interview, and he'll be telling us about how K1 began. Also, we'll be looking at a segment called The Best and Worst of K1, and this week we'll be looking at the best ring entrances in K1 history. We also have the latest K1 news and a K1 mailbag and a lot more. So, Jonathan... Without further ado, I think, my friend, we're going to fire up the flux capacitor, hop in the DeLorean, and go back in time. Are you ready, Jonathan? Let's get into it. All right, folks, let's get into it. It's time for K1 Rewind. We're going back. We're going all the way back. Okay, it's time to jump in the DeLorean, fire up the flux capacitor, and travel back in time today. We are going back to the most important date in kickboxing history, April 30, 1993, the date of the first K1 World Grand Prix. Hey, Jonathan, where were you on April 30, 1993? Um, I was still in the States, actually, and I had no awareness of K1 at that time. I was just out of high school, and I was actually training in a dojo in San Diego in 1993, so... That's where I was. Yourself, Michael, where where were you when, when this big event happened? You know, April 1993, I just started working as an editor at Blitz Martial Arts Magazine shortly before I co-created International Kickboxer Magazine. So unlike yourself, even though I was very young at the time, I was aware of K1, uh, not aware of 
what it would become. But I was aware of this big major international tournament taking place. Now, of course, K1 was invented by Kancho Ishii, a Sato Kaikan karate legend. And the K1 Grand Prix was the first tournament of its kind, inviting eight heavyweights from all over the world to compete in Tokyo for the right to be crowned the best kickboxer on the planet. It took place in front of a sellout crowd of 14,000 fans at Yoyogi National Gymnasium. And the event really had a kind of modern day Enter the Dragon Kumite blood sport feel to it. You had Master Ishii inviting all these great heavyweight kickboxers to compete under one banner, under one global set of rules, which had never been done before. So let me take you through who the eight combatants were. First of all, you had Brenko Sikitic from Croatia. Now, Brenko was a cruiserweight world champion, a Muay Thai light heavyweight world champion. He just lost a fight to Stan the Man Longanides. He had a controversial draw with Dennis Alexio. Uh, he'd had losses to Ernesto Houston in 1989, a loss to Don Wilson in 1987, but he did have wins over the likes of Andre Manart and Mahmoud Babachi. Was Branko a favorite? Well, not an outright favorite. He would have been fancied to make the semifinals, but not the final itself. And don't forget that Branko was actually a last-minute call-up for this tournament because there had been injuries in the initial eight men who'd been invited. I believe that Branko may have taken the place of uh, Stan the Man Longanides, who actually was in Tokyo, did get in the ring for a speech, but was sporting a cast on his right arm. He'd broken his arm in, in training. Next, you had Peter Ertz. Now, Peter was only 22 years old at the time. Peter was the WMTA Muay Thai heavyweight world champion, the IKBF kickboxing heavyweight world champion. Now, he was regarded as the favorite. Peter Ertz was a training partner of Branko Sikatik at Chukariki with Tom Harrink. He just KO'd the great Maurice Smith in Amsterdam with a right high kick, which was his second win over Maurice. And Ertz came to Tokyo on a 10-fight undefeated streak, including two wins over Frank Lobman. You had another wow. Dutchman in the lineup in 93, our old mate Ernesto Hoost. He wasn't old at the time. Ernesto was a kickboxing boy. Oh, he was young, man. He was young, but he didn't have the afro. If you go back to yeah. Ernesto's early fights in the late 80s, like against uh, uh, Johnny Terrio, you'll see Ernesto Hoost with the afro. I liked wow. Afro Ernesto. Afro Ernesto yeah. was cool. It was a little bit Apollo Creed, you know, with the Afro. I, I liked Ernesto with the Afro, but uh, sadly, by this stage, Jonathan, the Afro was gone. Uh, he was a Muay Thai champion, kickboxing champion, a Savat world champion. Savat, of course, the French kicking martial art. But all those were at light heavyweight for Ernesto. He'd had a win four years earlier over Peter Ertz. He'd beaten the likes of Branko Sikadik in 1989. He beat Andre Manart in 1988, Kirkwood Walker in 1989. But Ernesto was not considered a favorite for the K1 Grand Prix. And like I said, if you saw Ernesto back then in 93, he was tall, but he was skinny. He hadn't beefed up yet. It wasn't until Definitely after 93 later. that he started to beef up. He, he was small. I mean, tall, but small. And yeah, yeah. Jonathan, you, you talk to people from back then and they say, man, great fighter, technically superior to everyone, but just didn't have the size. So it was only later that Ernesto beefed up. Those were the, uh, the Dutch guys there. Then you had a couple of Americans in the lineup. First of all, you had Maurice Smith. Now this guy, Maurice Smith in 1993, folks, he was a killer. Maurice came into this tournament as one of the favorites, maybe second only favorite to Peter Ertz. 
Maurice Smith was the longest ever reigning WKA World Heavyweight Champion during a time when the WKA strap was the belt to have in kickboxing. He'd had back-to-back losses to Peter Ertz, but before that, Maurice had a loss of fight since, like, 1983. He just came in having low-kicked the crap out of Steve Krul in Vegas a month before. He'd beaten Stan the Man Longanides in Australia in Sydney in 1992. I mean, Maurice back then was the man. He'd go on to become a great UFC heavyweight champion. But at the time, April 1993, Maurice Smith was the man to beat in heavyweight kickboxing. Now, the second American, Jonathan, do you remember who this was? Um, Todd Haynes, I believe it was. Yes, Todd Hollywood Hayes. Hayes. He was a complete unknown. I mean, he was a UKF champion, whatever the hell UKF was back then. It was not one of the big sanctioning bodies. He was an American national champion. But in those days, being an American champion meant you weren't throwing leg kicks. You were typically wearing the long pants, the PKA, you know, the old PKA style, um, FFKA style, throwing a mandatory eight kicks eight kicks above the waist. Um, Hayes was really just there to be cannon fodder, I think, and just to have a couple of American flags flying. Um, but you know, nice. he was one of the one of the two Americans in there. You had the Japanese combatants, of course. There were two of them: uh, Toshiyuki Atakawa who was a karate world cup champion, a student of master Ishii, but the big focus was on the great Japanese host, Masaki Sataki. He was the one that everyone was rooting for. Again, Sataki was a student of master Ishii. He was flying that Sato Kaikan flag. He was the karate Japan open champion, which was a big deal back then. And he was big Jonathan for a Japanese. He was six foot one, 106 Mm. kilos, 234 pounds. Mate, you live in Japan. You're not seeing a lot of six foot one, 106 kilo Japanese walking around. Especially, I don't think at that time. I mean, you know, diets have changed over the years and people have gotten taller, but um, he he was a huge fighter in the mix. Definitely he, not overshadowed by anyone. He had the size. He had the hype. It was all hype, all the marketing, all the publicity in that tournament, the posters, the magazines, the television commercials, the commercials on multimedia in newspaper, on radio at the time, was all centered around Masaki Satake to win this thing. And of course, rounding out the eight-man lineup was the lone Thai entrant, Chung Prek Kiat Now, I really was a fan of this guy. He was a world light heavyweight Muay Thai champion. He had some dodgy kickboxing world title. He had two wins over the legendary Rob Carmen and a very, very, very famous win in Las Vegas over Rick Rufus in a performance that changed the face of Muay Thai forever. Uh, if you haven't seen it, go on YouTube, look up Chang Quick versus Rufus. It was a, 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 a changing of the guard fight, so to speak, where it signaled the death, really, of American kickboxing and hailed the entrance of Muay Thai on the global stage. Listen, Chang Quick was never going to be a favorite for the K1. He was just too small. He stood five foot eight. He maybe weighed around 80 kilos if he was soaking wet. But again, a tough competitor. And Jonathan, K1 originally and always wasn't specifically about being a heavyweight. It was opened to fighters of all weight classes to compete under a unified set of rules, which is what made it so attractive to people from the get-go. It was kind of like uh, the Wild West where you never knew what would happen. It was. And it was the genius of Kancho Ishii to put everyone under a, a common rule set. 
Now, now, before we get into the Grand Prix itself, we need to mention the undercard for one particular reason. There was a guy named Andy Hug fighting in a full contact karate match against Nobuaki Kakuta. Yep, Andy freaking Hug. Now, he knocked yeah. out Kakuta with a knee strike from a tie clinch. I think it was in the second round, and the crowd went absolutely nuts for him. Even before Andy Hug was a K1 star, Jonathan, he was so over with the audience in Japan to to coin a wrestling phrase. He uh, he came in with his gi on, right? Which was totally different than everyone else. They had shorts and they were in the in the boxing, you know, gear, but Andy came out in his gi and it really kind of set a different tone for the for the fight that night. It did. And what became a trademark of Andy, uh, you know, many of our old school fans will remember when he had the gi with the arms cut off, you know, that was the huge yeah. trademark for Andy over the years. But Andy was such a good looking guy. Uh, you know, he, he spoke eloquently. He spoke a number of languages, but he was, he was so over in Japan. Do go back and watch that one on YouTube because as I said, second round knee knockout from the tie clinch was, was amazing. So, so we get to the tournament itself and quarterfinal number one, Sataki versus, well, as I said, the guy who was brought in his cannon fodder, Todd Hayes. Predictably, Saki KO'd Hayes, but it took him until the second round to do so. And Hayes got some licks in on Sataki in the first round, including a really decent leg kick, which kind of surprised me. And it raised some red flags ringside because Sataki was expected to annihilate this unknown American. Now, he did that. He took out Hayes' legs with murderous kicks. It should have been over in one round. I mean, by the way, we said how Andy Hook was was so over with the Japanese crowd. Sataki was so over as well. When he made his way to the ring, it was demigod worship from the Japanese. They were nuts for him. And Todd Hayes uh, chopped down by the leg kicks in the second round, as predicted, although red flag, most people thought Sataki should have done it in the first. What would Todd Hayes go on to do? Well, he'd go on to become an Olympic bobsledder and actually win Olympic silver in 2020. Oh, 2002 in Salt Lake City. Get that. How's that for a career change? Nine years after getting your legs chopped out by Masati Sateke, Jonathan, you're winning Olympic silver medals in Salt Lake City for bobsledding. Well, you know, if at first you don't succeed, just keep trying something else. <laughs> keep bobsledding. Quarterfinal number two saw Branko Sikitik absolutely crush Chang Prek with a left hook knockout. Again, Chang Prek was just too small. He looked like a K1 Max fighter. And the knockout was absolute money. It was the best knockout of the quarterfinal stage, Brenko over Chung Puek. It was a really interesting punch. Like I oh. it says it says left hook, but it really looked to me like a jab that just kind of looped over the hand to make the connection. The loop is what turns it into the hook. And the thing is with Brenko is he may not have been the most technically gifted fighter. But no matter who I ever spoke to throughout K1, and of course, Branko passed several years ago, whether I was speaking to Peter Ertz or Tom Harrink or Ernesto Husto or, um, you know, Sam Greco, Stan the Man, any of these guys who fought Branko all said the same thing. No matter which hand Branko hit you with, if he hit you clean, most likely he would knock you out. The guy hit hard, sickeningly hard, murderously hard, equally off both hands. Branko was a stud. And this knockout, as we said over Chang Prick, was, was amazing. Quarterfinal number three, Maurice Smith defeats Atakawa by decision. It wasn't the rampant performance people were expecting from Maurice. I was a little disappointed with it. As I said, Maurice was a co-favorite with Peter Ertz. This was nothing special 
from Maurice. Quarterfinal number four, Ertz versus Hoost. The beginning of maybe one of the most epic rivalries in K1 history. And the first real shock in K1 history, Ernesto defeats Ertz by decision. Now, I know Ernesto had beaten Ertz by decision back in 1988, but this was a different Ertz. This was a young killer Ertz, 22 years old now, who'd had only one loss in his last four years. And for skinny Ernesto to eliminate Peter Ertz in the quarterfinals, Jonathan, I remember that was a huge shock. Great upset, huh? It, it, it set the tone for Ernesto, and not only for this tournament, for future tournaments as well. And for Peter, it really meant going back to the drawing board, and they were devastated after losing this. I know from having spoken to Tom Harrick, myself, and Tom's review after this tournament, they really thought that they should have won it in 93. So semifinal number two sees Ernesto Hoost with another upset. He takes out Maurice Smith. It happens with a third-round knockout head kick, and I'll tell you what, this, Jonathan, is one of the best knockouts in Ernesto's career, if not the single best knockout in Ernesto Hoost's long K1 career. This could be number one. Possibly the most replayed for sure. Oh, man. He loops the shin around Smith's neck from inside a phone booth, and Smith's legs give out from under him like a marionette with a string suddenly cut. I mean, this was a golden KO. Highlight real stuff. And Maurice Smith was, was never the same after it, Jonathan. Never the same. He, just let me say, Maurice would go on. Now, yeah. once again, this is the guy who was undisputed 10-year WKA undefeated world heavyweight champion. He gets knocked out tragically, murderously by Ernesto and would go on to win only three of his next 10 fights, Maurice Smith. This fight oh, changed wow. Maurice forever, Jay. Well, you could tell that it hit so clean. And if I was a doctor at ringside, I would have been worried that there was permanent damage to his spinal column. Oh, 100%. It was horrible. It was a horrible knockout. But there may be one better. We move on to the final. Franco Sikatik, Ernesto Hoost. This was a great final. It only lasted 169 seconds, but man, this was one of the best K1 Grand Prix finals ever. Franco waiting with power, who's precise with jabs and leg kicks. And then at two minutes and 49 seconds, Franco hits Ernesto with a right hand that plants Ernesto like a tree. Ernesto is out cold, ice cold. The celebrations begin for Branco. The female in-ring interviewer calls Branco the real strongest man in the world. And Ernesto is still laid out unconscious. He's laid out, Jonathan, yeah. for a long time on the canvas. I mean, this is one of the most vicious knockouts in K1 history, arguably the most vicious knockout in any K1 Grand Prix final. I think his soul was trying to find its way back to his body for, for the whole speech. <laughs> the, the connection was lost for a long, long time. And, you yeah, know, it, sure. it wrapped up what all in all was a great and epic K1 Grand Prix, the first one ever. Everyone went into this tournament trying to kill one another, trying to make history. And Jonathan, it really did set our imaginations on fire for what was to come from K1 over the next 17 years or so. That's where it all began that night, April 30, 1993. And man, going back and watching this tournament again, I hadn't watched it for years. It was so good to relive it again. For me, it's like reliving WrestleMania 1. 
a lot of people throw it away, disregard it because it was the first one ever. But man, it was star-studded. Branko, Ernesto, Peter, Maurice, Sataki, all in there. You had some epic knockouts and you had the best guy on the night emerging as the champion. Doesn't get better. Doesn't get better. So that's our review, folks, in our uh, K1 Rewind. And we'll be doing this every single episode. We'll be going back to great moments, K1 classics in max and heavyweights over the years and reviewing all of our favorite moments. So stick around in the future for more K1 Rewind. But that's been our review of the 1993 K1 World Grand Prix. This just in. That's news to me, man. Okay, time for K1 goings on globally and our latest K1 news. Jonathan, there was the K1 Rebirth 2 event in Osaka on December 9, a sold-out event in Osaka. It had been a long time since Osaka had seen genuine K1, and my word, brother, did they turn up in their thousands and witness an event full of upsets. It, it was. It was the night for the Challenger but do you realize that it was 23 fights over nine it was hours? Massive. But you know the thing about the event in Osaka? It didn't feel long. It didn't feel like it was drawn out or stretched out for any particular reason because the fights were all so entertaining. And because, yes. well, you know, if you're a betting man and you're the type of you know gambling dude that enjoys placing money on the underdogs, you would have cleaned up after December 9. It was crazy. You'd be driving around in a much... Nicer car right now. <laughs> For sure. There, there were some favorites that win. Let's point out a couple here. Some of the favorites that did win. Uh, Lusa of China. The Ivan Drago of K1, as Eddie Bravo so famously coined the phrase, coined the nickname for him after K1 yeah. Rebirth number one. Uh, he fought Saya Tanagawa, and uh, it was easy pickings again. And Lusa has gotten bigger, Jonathan. He's growing. He is growing. He knocked out Tanagawa really feel that. in the first round in two minutes, 38. The man's an animal. He's he's so tall. He's like 196 centimeters, which is uh, it's six plus a lot of change. I can't do the the math offhand, but uh, he's he's incredibly tall. He He's at least 10 centimeters taller than than most of the people that he fights. He towers you know what he's, over he, them. You know what he's doing now, though? He's doing an Ernesto. You know, we said previously that Ernesto was skinny but tall in the 1991 yeah. K1 Grand Prix. And after that K1, Ernesto started to bulk up. Now we're seeing yeah. Lussard do the same. Lussard is starting to bulk up. He was very lean. I think he was the high 80s, maybe 90 kilos at K1 Rebirth 1. He was bigger at K1 Rebirth 2. The guy's going to be pushing 100 kilos plus in uh, 2024. I just know it. He is a beast. Well, it says right now that he's 99.5, which is 200. 20 pounds almost and uh because i i can't speak and do math at the same time i'm sorry but he's six foot five for those in the states yeah so he's, he's a giant he's, he's huge so he's ernestoing himself uh, you know what I'll, yes. I'll change what i said i believe he'll probably get up to look you can't go too heavy because he's naturally used to walking around carrying you know 88 90 kilos you don't want to go to 110 mm. 115 i think he probably sits well at 105 106 and i think we'll see lusar get there sometime in 2024 but it's been a good streak for china you know k1 reborn k1 rebirth has introduced china into the fold and another big win on december 9 was uh yuang feng knocking out hiromi wajima in the second round to become the new K1 Super Welterweight Champion. First it was the last fight of the night. Oh, man. It, another upset, Jonathan. Another yeah, upset. Yeah. You know, China and over he, Japan. He stole it. 
Yeah. At the very end of the at the very end of the fight, they were going at it, and uh, he was rocked. He bounced back, and he took the fight. Wajima fought really sound in the first round. He was putting together his combinations. He was precise. He was technical. And then I think he got a little overeager to either try to finish uh, Feng or maybe showboat for the crowd and you know, endear the crowd towards him a bit. And as you said, it, it ended up uh, being disastrous for him. He paid the price. And we have a new K1 super welterweight champion. Another shock yeah. result um, for me, at least, Jonathan, was for the K1 middleweight strap. Uh, Shintaro beating Hassan Toy. I thought Toy was going to take this one and retain the crown, but Shintaro won it. He did too. Yeah, no, he, Toy definitely was not satisfied with the results, unfortunately, but um, Shintaro had a lot of heart and he was hitting harder. He was on the aggression, the aggressive side the whole night. And that's really what characterized the event was the challengers were taking it to the champions. They all were very aggressive. We don't go through all the fights, but I do want to mention this one. Uh, you know, back in the day, there were no such thing as having women in the K1 arena. That has changed. Uh, for many people, that's a good thing. People enjoy watching women's fighting. And when you get two really good women, like Kana versus Antonia Prifty, you enjoy women's kickboxing and women's K1. And this was this another a great huge fight. Up, great fight and a big upset again, yeah. Jonathan. A big upset mm. because Thrifty defeated Kana. No many, not many people saw it coming. Another Greek competitor. Um, you know, that proud Greek tradition of the likes of Stan the Man Longanides, Tosca Petridis, Iron Mike Zambides that have come through K1 in the past. Here's Prifty, and here she is beating Kana to become the K1 Women's Flyweight Champion. A big upset, Jonathan. That's true. And you know, Kana has, she's a threat. She can knock people out. Half of her fights have ended in KO. She has, uh, I think, 11 KO victories as opposed to Prifty's um, four or five KOs. And so there was a real difference in power, but uh, Prifty, she was so aggressive and she was able to really find her own distance and frustrate Kana the whole match. It was a, it was a wonderful fight. Highly recommend people check it out. Check it out. It was amazing. It was an amazing match, uh, amazing you know, night. And as Jonathan said, night, day, nine hours. It was long, but it didn't feel long. Check it out if you can. K1 Rebirth 2. And uh, Jonathan, some already very exciting announcements for 2024. We move ahead to the date March the 20th, which uh, coincidentally is my dad's birthday, but it's oh. also a rebirth. A rebirth of what in history has been called pound for pound the greatest era in kickboxing history, K1 Max. I think it's at the the Yoyogi. Uh, yeah. So going back have to, to check you, that, but you, no, you're right. It's going back to Yoyogi, which was the setting for the first ever K1 World Grand Prix in 1993. It holds about 14,000 people. It's going to be on a Wednesday night. It's a midweek event. Uh, and from what I've been told, and I can't mention too much. But because we are the K1 Battlecast, the official podcast of K1, we do have some insider information that they will be inviting some very slick international K1 Max fighters to this tournament. Uh, so it won't be just Japanese or Japanese and Chinese. It will be Western fighters as well on March 20. Jonathan, it is one of several K1 Max tournaments they are planning to do 
in 2024, along with many K1 heavyweight tournaments. And also, uh, the good word is the good oil that they are looking at doing maybe four or five international tournaments. So outside of Japan in 2024. Indeed, they're still working out the details, but we should have more information on that at the end of December. Yeah, I'll, I'll just I'll just titillate our listeners a little by saying there are some countries being mentioned that traditionally K1 has gone to before and done large viewing figures. And there are some countries being mentioned that K1 has never been to before and would be super exciting. But uh, that is our news for this week in the wide world of K1. Stand back. That man's a superstar. Welcome to Superstar Interview on this first ever episode of K1 Battlecast. And what better guest to have today than the man who in 1993 founded K1. I'm talking about the one and only Kancho Ishii. Jonathan, if you'll please translate this interview. Yes, indeed. We welcome the founder of K1, Kancho Ishii. Kancho, thank you so much for your time for joining us on K1 Battlecast. Yes, thank you very much. I am very glad. Kancho Ishii, can you remember a particular moment where the idea for K1 came to you? Or was it a process that took months or maybe took years to develop? It's more. It always bothered me. There's a lot of different fighting organizations, and each one has its champion. And all of them say that they're the strongest. But I always wanted to know who really was the strongest. And I always wanted to see that fight. There's WKA, ISKA, a lot of different organizations. And I always wanted to get those fighters together and see what they would do. I thought if I wanted to see that, other people must too. And if no one else was doing it, I thought, why not me? How did you select the eight fighters for the K1 Grand Prix in 1993? Well, they all had to be reigning champions. From WKA, it was Maurice Smith. From Europe, it was Peter Ertz and his rival, Ernesto Hust. And from Australia, it was Stan the Man. All of them were champions in their own right. So I went to each one of their countries and I negotiated directly with each of them. In that day and age, there was no such thing as a cell phone. The only thing you could do was send a fax. And then once you'd done that, you'd knock on their door and have a conversation with them. That's some footwork. I was a lot lighter on my feet back then. The first thing I did was to go to Melbourne and speak with Stan the Man. After that, I went to Europe and I spoke with Johan Voss and Tom Herring, the representatives of Ernesto Hust and Peter Ertz. And then I went to the States and spoke with Maurice Smith and Todd Hollywood Hayes. At the end, I'd gone all around the world. You must have wanted to travel just a little bit. Well, my objective was pretty clear, and I didn't have the freedom to travel. But back in those days, you could get a ticket that was a first-class ticket that would allow you to travel all around the world. 
でそれを使って、まあ、ファーストクラスだったんで、楽はなくて、ね、そういうことで、そういうことで、そういうことで、そういうことで、そういうことで、そういうことで、そういうことで、そういうことで、そういうことで、そういうことで、そういうことで、そういうことで、そういうことで、そういうことで、そういうことで、そういうことで、そういうことで、そういうことで、そういうことで、そういうことで、そういうことで、そういうことで、そういうこととすると、so、if we made each fight three rounds in K1, plus an extension round, that would be four rounds, and you fought three times, that would be a total of 12 rounds. So that's how we came up with the three round figure. And I said, hey, it's only three rounds, and if you win by KO, you could win in one round. And here's what happens if you win the tournament, which is how I buttered him up. Kuncho, when the K1 World Grand Prix was announced, what was the reaction in Japan? And can you particularly tell me the feeling in the martial arts community worldwide? In Japan, there was Fuji Television, and they were one of the biggest terrestrial stations. And after we announced it there and promoted through them, the reaction was incredible. I'd done events in the past and had had success, so I knew how things should go. But we sold 12,000 tickets in 10 minutes, completely sold out. And there was nothing left, but people kept asking for tickets. Even after they'd sold out. And there were people from all over the world who really wanted to see a fight between Peter Ertz and Ernesto Hust. But because Tom Herrick and Johan Voss didn't get along, there's no way that fight was going to happen. But at the 93 tournament, we put it together. Everyone wanted to know how strong Peter Ertz was, the guy who had fought and beat Maurice Smith. Everyone was so interested to see how Branko Sikatik would fare against Muay Thai champion Chang Puik. And back then, we didn't have any social media, so all the hype came after the tournament. Everyone wanted to know just what was K1. When it was all said and done, how did word of the event spread worldwide? In Japan, people were talking about it, but it was when the fighters went back to their own countries that word of mouth really started to spread. Kuncho, there were so many great fighters in that lineup Ertz and Sikatik and Sataki, Maurice Smith. Who did you consider the pre tournament favorite? I thought for sure it was going to be Peter Ertz or Maurice Smith. But then it was Ernesto Hust and Branko Sikatik who made it to the finals. I guess you could say it betrayed my expectations, but in a good way. In Japan, so much of the narrative focus was on Masaki Sateke. Why do you think it is that he never became the K1 Grand Prix champion? It's really hard for Japanese to succeed in the super heavyweight category. Sataki was naturally 80 kilograms or a light heavyweight. 
He could have even been fighting in the middleweight category. So he really had to increase his mass and put on muscle, while his opponents, who had more than 100 kilograms naturally, they had to just lose a little bit of weight. It's about a 30 kilogram spread. I asked him to be Japan's representative in the tournament, but I didn't think he was going to win. He sure tried hard though. Why do you think Japan never produced a K1 Grand Prix winner? I mean, what do you think is needed to produce a super heavyweight champion of champions? So like Otani, who's a major league baseball player, there's a lot of athletes in Japan who are top level, but unfortunately they get taken by other sports, such as baseball, basketball, or volleyball. They go in that direction. So not many of them come the way of judo or boxing or K1, MMA. That's what makes it so difficult. What do you think can be done? Well, you have to make the market. So if K1 or if MMA makes the market as big as a major league sport and the athletes can make money, then the sports will be able to attract more high-level elite athletes, people that could take part in the Olympics. So that's where fighting organizations like K1 really need to focus. Kancho, I want to talk about your memories of the late, great Branko Sikatik and him winning that first ever K1 World Grand Prix. He had hands of stone. His punches were so hard. And not only were they naturally strong, but he worked very hard to maintain that strength. He was constantly training his hands. He had that combination of natural talent and an incredible work ethic. He also had a lot of experience. He was able to very quickly find the timing for Ernesto Hu's punches and turn his head to the side just when Ernesto hit him, take that punch and counter. You know, he was 40, actually. We said he was 39, but he was 40. And to have that kind of ability was really incredible. And Ernesto Hust, a relative unknown who shocked people by making it to the final of the 93 Grand Prix against Sikatik. Hust was a very strong champion out of Europe, but he didn't really weigh that much. He was around 83 kilograms, which is a cruiserweight, right around the same weight class as Rob Common. But he tried to bulk up before he attended. Back then, Kancho, did you have any idea that Ernesto would go on to become a four-time winner of the Grand Prix? Yeah, I did think he was going to be successful. The reason is, he had such a good team. He was being coached by Jan Plas, the father of European kickboxing. So Jan Plas was on his team, and Johan Voss as well. They were both like Ernesto Hust's brain. They were able to come up with great strategies, and Ernesto was a phenom. But it wasn't just him, it was also his incredible team. Tough question, Kancho, but in your opinion, who is the greatest K1 Grand Prix champion of all time? You know, this is a tough question. I get asked this a lot. But it's really like rock, paper, scissors. 
Paper beats rock, scissors beats paper, and rock beats scissors. It's really about compatibility. Andy always did well against Bronco. Bronco beat Ernesto, and Ernesto could always beat Andy. So it's really hard to answer that question because it's all about the matchup, which is what makes it interesting. Kanjo, do you have any final message that you'd like to give to the fans? I want people to believe in K1. It's an amazing sport. It's the world's best sport, in my opinion. There's a lot of emotion there and high-level technical ability and a sense of urgency and very intense offense and defense. So, MMA is great in its own way, but it can be quite violent. I feel K1 should aim to become the best sport in the world, the most popular sport in the world, one that anyone can watch and enjoy. If you were to compare, say, MMA to football or rugby, I think K1 should be more like soccer. It's a very exciting sport. I really want people to keep on believing in what K1 stands for. That's my message for the fighters and the organizers of K1. Make K1 a national sport, something like soccer, only in fighting. Thank you very much. Ishi Kancho, thank you so much for your time today. And more than that, thank you for firing all our imaginations and endearing our hearts and inventing K1. Very good to see you. Thank you very much. Well, there you have it, Jonathan Kancho Ishii. I can't believe we got to speak to the founder on episode one of K1 Battlecast, and that was a slice of history that I surely will never forget. And I tell you what, Jonathan, I learned a lot. As did I, Michael. Gosh, what a wealth of all knowledge, K1. And uh, for those of you who are listening, please know that we'll release the full interview on December 18th. Uh, this was just a taste. It was a teaser and that bonus episode will be coming out on Monday, so please keep your eyes and ears peeled for that. You're the best. Get that out of here. Now we're going to take a look at the best and worst of K1, and this week we're going to look at ring entrances. And you know, every fighter's got one. Some maybe a little bit more exciting than others. So let's review our top picks. Oh, this is going to be fun. I've been looking forward to this. Now, Jonathan, right at the top here, I want to discuss one ring entrance in particular. Everyone knows it. It's hard to forget. It's Bob Sapp's ring entrance. Now, let me oh, say yeah. that I, I could never get past the fact that the fancy feathered robe and the music from uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey, was a, a little too Ric Flair for mine. And the way that Bob okay. would, would roll himself into a ball wrapped inside his robe and then explode out of it. For me, I've got to say, a little on the corny side. I mean, there was all right. There, there was a lot about Bob that was corny. A lot that he borrowed from pro wrestling. He did have a background in pro wrestling, of course. So, yeah, you know, Jonathan, let, let's get this one sorted from the outset. Does Bob Sapp's ring entrance deserve to be placed here in the best K1 ring entrances, or do we hold on to it and review it as one of the worst 
K1 ring entrances? Well, I, I just want to put in that it's the fight business, so it's kind of show business, right? And you got to give props to Bob Sapp. So even though he may be over the top for some people, he is entertaining, and he puts people in seats. So I appreciate what he was trying to do. The other thing with Bob that always got me is it's huge. I mean, we, we both spent a lot of time with Bob, and he's massive, like 300 pounds. He's like six foot five. His musculature is off the scale. How did he manage to roll himself into that little ball to fit under his robe? How did he do that? I never could well, figure you know, it out. I don't know that he's quite human, which is maybe why he's he's alluding to 2001, right? He, <laughs> he could be an alien life form of some kind or another. He is not a normal human. He is gigantic. I just made a connection here. Bob made his K-1 debut in 2001. Maybe that's the oh reason gosh. why he used 2001, a space odyssey. Maybe he was thinking 2001, a Bob Sapp odyssey. It all Chabello's makes done now. it. I think I've solved it. Anyway, Bob Sapp aside, we, we agree to uh, keep him as uh, not one of the worst entrances, but there were a lot of epic ring entrances and music choices in K1 Grand Prix history. And for the record, when we say K1 Grand Prix, we're talking about the big fellas, the heavyweights. There were many epic K1 Max, but today we are looking at the heavyweight entrances. And Jonathan, okay. when I think of epic K1 GP entrances, the first one who comes to mind is Jerome Labana. I mean, this oh, yeah. guy just screamed epicness. And he had several entrances. He had Orf's Carmina Barana, which had been made famous in kickboxing by Stan the Man Longanides uh, many years before Labana used it. But I loved Labana's use of Conan the Barbarian theme, especially his entrance at the 2001 K1 Grand Prix in front of 65,000 people at the Tokyo Dome. The way that Jerome stomped his way to the ring with his typical French arrogance, the Conan music started playing. I mean, wow, my heart was beating out of my chest. Everything about Jerome Labana screamed intensity and murderous intentions and beastliness. It's like you could, if you could see the thought bubble popping out of his head, it'd say, what is the best in life? To crush your enemies and see them driven before you and to hear the lamentations of their women. He really was Conan the Barbarian. I loved this ring entrance from Jerome Labana. I do not disagree. And, you know, the first time that I ever got to see LeBanner was, I think, at the 2006 World Grand Prix, because um, I didn't join until a bit later. Um, but it was after his his arm that had been injured had finally healed, and they were saying he's very confident, and he comes out to this amazing song. And uh, it was like the golden boy. It was his golden moment. And uh, he looked so confident when he came out to that song. So so we're torn here. I'm giving my best entrance of Jerome to the Conan the Barbarian. For you, though, it's Carmina Burana. Yeah, I'm going to have to go with that. It, only because it's the first time that I saw him in person. It may be the same with me. The first time I ever saw Jerome in person was commentating the 2001 K1 World Grand Prix when he came out to Conan against Mark Hunt. So I may All be right. a little biased, and I think these things these formative memories stick in your brain and you can't get rid of them. So 
We may be a little Indeed. biased. Folks, do let us know on social media. Um, do you prefer the Carmina Burana entrance of Jerome or do you prefer the Conan the Barbarian? Folks, let us know on social media who are your favorite heavyweight ring entrances of all time and why. And stay tuned because on every episode, we'll be bringing you the best and the worst of the K1. Come on, just listen. Would you just listen? Now we have listener mailbag where we answer your questions about K1. We have a question, Michael, from Sacramento, California. Randy asks, do you think Rico Verhoeven would have won the K1 Grand Prix during K1's heady years? And uh, what Ooh. do you think? Oh, man, Randy, that is a great question and one that's been debated quite a bit. Uh, firstly, let's establish K1's heady years because you specifically said in your email, uh, heady years. I say peak K1 was 1996 to 2002 from Andy's win through to Ernesto's fourth and final win with Peter Ertz's record fastest win in 1998. Now, if this is the period we are talking about, then no. I don't think Rico Verhoeven would have won any of those tournaments. Would he have gone close? Uh, look, Randy, that was an era full of killers. You're talking a prime Ertz, prime Hoost, prime Hug, prime Mirko, prime Sefo, Greco, Labana, Hunt, Filio, Ignashov. I, I don't think Rico gets through a tournament full of monsters like those guys. Um, you know, those guys in their prime were just next level. Don't get me wrong. Rico is a great fighter. He's been the heavyweight king of the post-K1 era. I'm a fan of Rico Verhoeven's, but you cannot compare the names he's beaten in glory to the names that were ruling the K1 roost during the era of 1996 to 2002. And that is a fact. I only disagree on, on one point, Michael, and that's because I'm an optimist. I'd like to think that the heady years of K1 are from 2024 on. <laughs> I love so, your optimism. We'll see. Uh, you we'll know, see. In, that, in that case, Rico could win them. Come across to K1 yeah, and right? test your middle. Test your middle. <laughs> test, test your middle. Great. Okay, we have another question, Michael. This one is from London, from Hackney, London. Ethan writes, had Andy Hug not passed away, do you think he would have won another K1 Grand Prix tournament? Oh, man. Who was this from, from Hackney, London, Jonathan, did you say? Yes, Ethan from Ethan. Hackney, London. Ethan, yes. you are asking a hard question. This is a great question. And, and you know what? This is a question that I and I'm sure many K1 fans have thought about for a long time. I am a diehard Andy Hug fan. I interviewed him many moons ago. His story was so inspiring. You know, Andy was once told, he couldn't box. He was too short. He was too light. He'd never make it as a professional kickboxer. And boy, did he prove his critics wrong. So Andy won the Grand Prix in 1996. Then he was runner-up to Ernesto in 1997 and to Peter in 1998. That's an amazing record and something that other single-time winners couldn't match. Ranko. Mark Hunt, Alastair, all single-time winners, 
but never runners up once, let alone twice. Would Andy have won another Grand Prix? Had he not passed? Had he not gotten ill at all? Oh man, the mind, the mind says no. When he passed, he would have. Uh, let me. He was thirty-six years old, so perhaps too old to win the crown again. But that said, Ernesto was thirty-seven when he won it for a fourth time in two thousand and two. The mind still says no, Ethan, but the heart says maybe. I mean, Andy defied the odds his entire life. His heart was bigger than anyone's. His background, his resolve, his determination, they were undeniable. He had that us spirit in him, born from his Kyokushin background, that never say die, never wave the white flag attitude. So, you know, he, he may have just found his way to do it one more time. Like I said, it's a great question. Could he have beaten 2000 Ernesto, 2001 Hunt, 2002 Ernesto? I, I certainly think he would have worked them out. If he was in place of Hunt in 2001 and had to fight Labana, then Leco, then Filio in the final, I, I certainly think Andy would have had a red hot chance if he was on on that day. So, uh, you know what? If he hadn't have passed, maybe in 2001, um, he, he might have he solved the riddle. Andy could have done it again. It, that, is a, that is a great, great question. Well, it's certainly uh, entertaining to think about, for sure. Um, I never had the chance to really watch Andy in action. Um, I, I joined a little bit later than that, but um, you he hear was what special, people say Jonathan, about him. He was yeah. special, Jonathan. The thing was, with Andy, he didn't just rely on the basics. He was so ingenious. This is the guy who had the axe kick. Not that he invented the axe kick, yeah. but he was the first guy to really use the axe kick effectively in kickboxing. And an axe kick is designed to bring the heel straight down like a like a chopping axe either on the bridge of the nose or on the on the collarbone of the opponent uh, or on the top of the chest top of the head if you can get it up there Andy was so good at it but the way he won um, even the way he won the grand prix when he beat Mike Bernardo in the final in 1996 he did it by a turning back kick to the thigh to the thigh you know how painful Whoa. it is to get corked in the thigh Imagine the power of an Andy Hook heel careening into your quads. The cork from Hal, Bernardo went down, couldn't get up. And then I remember, Jonathan, after that, every man and his dog in kickboxing around the world was attempting the Andy Hook turning back kick to the heel in their fights. He was amazing. Wow. Well, the, his legend lives on. It does indeed. And folks, these are great questions. Keep them coming via our social media. Ask your questions. We'll read them out. We'll answer them honestly. Write to us at K1 Battlecast and we'll answer your questions. Well, that's a wrap for the first episode of K1 Battlecast, the official podcast of K1. And folks, make sure you catch episode number two coming your way shortly because we've got some epic stuff in store for you. We'll be reviewing the greatest kickboxing fight of all time, Zambides versus Chahid. That one is going to be nuts. That all-time great fight. Watch it on YouTube before we get around to discussing it. Zambides versus Chahid. And as a special treat, 
We'll be dialing in Mike Zambides himself all the way from Athens, Greece, as our superstar interview on episode two. And also, we'll be looking at the best and worst of K1 yet again, asking who was the best K1 fighter to never win the K1 World Grand Prix. Think about your answer for that one. But right now, from myself, Michael Chevallo. And me, Jonathan Cheer. Thanks for joining us, folks. This has been K1 Battlecast. Keep in touch with us on social media. We'll see you next time for episode two. Take care. You can download our podcast on all of the major platforms and, frankly, a lot of the minor ones, too. We upload our show every Friday, with the exception of an occasional bonus or two. Also, please contact us on X or Facebook and drop us some questions for the listener mailbag. We look forward to hearing from you soon.